episode 136, Wrinkled Painting. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 29, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on our website, kshs.org. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all the cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Some folks spend their retirement whittling wood or gardening. Elizabeth Grandma Layton spent her golden years painting disturbing images of depression and civil rights violations. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a painting produced by an elderly woman from Wellsville, Kansas. Layton turned to painting late in life to help her deal with depression. Learn how this old lady from Kansas rocked the art world. Then, we go behind the scenes with the Historical Society's digital archivist to examine some recently discovered footage of Kansas hippies at a Woodstock-like music festival. Did this event kickstart the counterculture movement in Kansas, or did it lead to the election of the state's most oppressive attorney general? Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to Pepsi, the world's second most popular carbonated soft drink. Was White a Pepsi man that made the choice of a new generation? But first, wrinkled painting. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a colored pencil drawing by Elizabeth Layton, an artist from Wellsville, Kansas. This drawing depicts a rather distorted and slightly disturbing image of an elderly couple with sunflowers in their hair seated around a miniature Kansas State House that appears to be on fire. You do realize... There are some disturbed people out there that would find that a political fantasy. Uh, and perhaps that's what the artist intended. I'm not sure. But it's a, it's a very distinctively drawn, um, a drawn image. Um, the painting has a specific purpose. But before we talk about the painting, let's talk a little bit about the artist. Blair, who was Elizabeth Layton? Elizabeth Layton grew up in Wellsville. Uh, she, her family was from there. Her father ran the local newspaper, and she, in fact, ran the paper for a while herself. Uh, but she was a woman who had a life that was not exactly easy. She had a very bad first marriage and uh, a son who died around 1976, well before she did. It's one of those cases where parents had to bury her children. And so she suffered from depression and some other mental ailments that caused her to go through electroshock therapy and a few other drug therapy as well. But and she was an educated wo- she woman. She was a very educated woman, yeah. And she, was, she worked in the newspaper industry. Yes. Was that, that was kind of her trade? Uh, yes. Um, just had some demons to deal with, like more so than some people did. So she had a little baggage. 
Layton's work, her artwork has a very distinctive appearance. Um, you can you can tell them, you can pick them out. She she did several pieces of artwork. You can tell what they look like. How would you describe her style, and uh, what is the motivation to this particular style? Well, it's a technique that she used, and and a sister actually encouraged her to take art classes, thinking that might help with some of her depression. And so the art classes she took dealt with contour drawing. And that's a drawing where you don't really look at the paper while you're drawing. You just sort of start up, put your pencil or your whatever implement you're using and start drawing. And so as a result, it does tend to look rather distorted. Uh-huh. But it's also a lot of lines involved. It's a lot right? of it lines, like yes. contour maps on yes. a meteorological. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of a good way of image. putting it, yeah. Uh, but she got to be very good at it, uh, probably more so than usual. You could at least make out what she was trying to draw anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, that did catch the attention of people. As far as we can tell, this painting commemorates a birthday. At least that's what it appears to. Uh, we know this because uh, it, it shows Leighton and her husband wearing what look like party hats. Um, and they're seated in front of a birthday cake, which I think is what the state house with candles. Yes. Uh, that's what that's supposed to look yeah. like. Uh, whose birthday was, was it, and uh, why would Leighton care about this birthday? Well, you know, the title of the piece is actually Celebrate the Arts in the 125th Birthday of Kansas. So it's uh, Kansas's it's birthday. It's Kansas's birthday, yes. And uh, the things you see in there have to do with Kansas. Of course, that is the state house with all the candles on it. Sheener, and I should point out, this is her second husband, Glenn, who shows up in a lot of her paintings, Uh and her first husband, uh, that are in the picture. There is an orchestra on the front steps of the Capitol that is part of that celebration of the arts. There's various images of Kansas, from bison to sunflowers. Uh, There are stars in the sky above the Capitol, which deals with the state's motto, of course, at Astra per Astra. Sure, sure. So it's all there. It's a nice little celebration of the arts, as the title indicates. So was she contract, or was she commissioned by somebody to do this piece, or was this just, she was just a diehard Kansas fan? Uh, well, she probably was that, actually, but this was not a commissioned piece. This was a gift to fellow named Don Lambert who had promoted much of her work and really a lot of the attention that has been given Grandma Leighton is owed to her. Leighton did not become a professional artist until late in her life, uh, which sounds rather strange, but it's really not that uncommon. In fact, wasn't it somewhat fashionable in the 1950s and 70s to kind of discover an old woman that could paint? <laughs> I'm specifically yeah. referencing, like, uh, Grandma, Grandma Moses. Moses. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure it was really that fashionable. And, and, and actually, Grandma Moses was really discovered just before the beginning of the Second World War. Um, she gets more fame through the 50s. And she is what we refer to as a folk artist for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure it's fashionable. If it were, uh, I might be living off the profits of Grandma Tar, who was a, not a bad artist. She taught art herself. But, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but well, okay, maybe fashionable is not the best word. But, I mean, it is unusual. Leighton, Leighton was a pretty uh, – she, she garnered a lot of respect, at least regionally, as she a very accomplished did, yeah. artist. And, and she even got national attention. Uh, the Smithsonian, I think, as I recall, had an exhibit of her work. And, 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 and the fact that her advanced age is often – 
I mean, that's that was a selling point. That's was, part of that the selling was, point, and it's part of the story, too, behind her and getting back to the Depression. The artwork really does help her a great deal in working out some of the problems with her depression. They say that the early works that she did, uh, it tends to reflect some of the things that she had to deal with early in life. Uh, later works, after she's gotten through this, she's becoming an advocate for things, uh, things that she believes in, uh, fighting AIDS, fighting, uh, working for the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, and, and various political causes. A lot of those, that starts to show up in her work. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, and, and it becomes more positive in Outlook than it does at those first uh, works that she does. If you were to estimate how many pieces she produced, what would you say? Oh, that's a good question. More than 50? It's more than 50 easily, but I'm not really sure how much higher than that it is. And any idea where, I mean, where where would we find some of those pieces today? Uh, private collections, even uh, I think most of the Kansas museums, like the Beach and the Spencer, both have Manbar Layton's work. We have the one here, uh, the Celebrate the Arts mm-hmm. one. Well, Layton was kind of discovered, and you referenced uh, the person who uh, who discovered her. Uh, discovered her. Uh, the painting is inscribed to Don Lambert. Yes. Uh, who was Lambert? What was his role in this? Uh, well, it's actually who is Lambert because he's still alive. <laughs> uh, Don is a native Kansan and has been a great promoter of the arts in Kansas. Uh, he recognized her work fairly early on. Um, I can't quite remember all the details, but she he saw some of her works when she was still, I think, in the class over at Ottawa University uh-huh. or very shortly afterwards and really started promoting her work as something that was excellent. And it got he was very good at doing the promotional work. It did get a, quite a bit of attention for her. Well, we are currently celebrating the Kansas sesquicentennial. Uh, much like the, you know, that's the 150th anniversary as opposed to the 125th. Um, that Everybody repeat after us. Sesquicentennial. <laughs> Which means 150, <laughs> if anybody wants to know. Um, and undoubtedly, some elderly women will come forward with a painting, <laughs> perhaps a quilt of some type, um, uh, that was designed to commemorate the event. Uh, any idea what kind of slightly disturbing images you might see on these future uh, future pieces? Oh, boy. Uh, Are we going to see the Capitol on fire again? I don't know. Well, it might be something more topical, something uh, for the days, such as maybe a image of a Kansas politician tweeting pictures of his or herself. <laughs> Politicians like to do that these days, apparently. Uh, I hear that's true. Not not that I know anything about that. (laughs) Okay, well, hopefully we won't have to deal with that kind of image in our museum collection someday. Although it could be entertaining. All right, Blair, thanks for telling us about uh, Mrs. Layton and her artwork. Elizabeth Layton wasn't the only Kansas artist to deal with civil injustice. In the 1930s, Kansas native Aaron Douglas became a major figure in the Harlem Renaissance. He is the subject of today's Kansas Quiz. Named for a famous black neighborhood in New York, the Harlem Renaissance was the flowering of African-American art and literature. 
Living in New York at the time, Douglas became highly respected for his mural paintings that depicted majestic African-American figures. Today, his style of geometric painting is synonymous with the movement. Though he ended up in New York, in what Kansas town did Douglas begin his career? Recently, some interesting home videos were uploaded to Kansas Memory, the Historical Society's online digital repository. These amateur films depict the 1970 Pittsburgh Peace Festival in Cherokee County, Kansas. Today, we go behind the scenes with digital archivist Michael Church and discuss the rarely seen concept of the Kansas hippie. To begin with, I want to provide uh, a description of the video because it's something to be seen for sure. Um, essentially, uh, you see an improvised outdoor music festival, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an outdoor festival um, held in a, a farmer's field, uh-huh. uh, like a 160-acre acre field. I mean, there's a lot of footage of people just kind of walking around. Yeah, walking around. But you see automobiles all over the place. You see, you see a lot of tents. Um, people look like they're age 20 to 30. Kids are adorned with sort of 60s clothing and aesthetic. There's a couple afros, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I think is most interesting is the scenes are broken up with kind of graphic interludes of like psychedelic Hindu drawings and uh, patriotic eagles. And there was a marching band that I saw at one point. And there was actually like a historic photograph of Lee surrendering to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Yeah, uh, the, the filmmaker, you know, it's a, it, we should say that this is a silent film. So the filmmaker really had to, to use techniques like that, uh, juxtapose imagery and do camera tricks in order to get his message across. Well, it's, it's not always clear what his message is. You, you see, you know, what you think of as hippies in the footage. And, and they're doing kind of hippie things, but you don't really see any countercultural actions, or they're, they're not burning flags mm-hmm. or, or anything. There, there's no protest or anything like that. They're just milling around. And yeah, they're just hanging out. And, and it, it, but he throws in all this imagery that gives this whole subtext to the whole film uh-huh. that I don't, maybe a lot of people there didn't even intend. You know, it's hard to know. The films feature a music festival that took place on Labor Day weekend in 1970 near Cherokee County, Kansas. Who organized this particular event, and what was its purpose? Uh, well, it was a couple of local guys who organized it. Uh, uh, there's a, a Kansas State College at Pittsburgh, is in uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas, which is in Crawford County. Uh, just below Crawford County in the southeast corner of the state is Cherokee County. The, a guy named Kenny Osana, he was just 19 years old from Arma, Kansas in Crawford County. And uh, he was kind of the initial organizer. And uh, there was this uh, kind of mystery about who the other organizer was. And in the paper, if you read the, the newspaper articles about it, uh, there was some intrigue about who the organizers were, and it wasn't always clear. And then, and then finally it came out the day of the festival that the other organizer was this uh, a gentleman named uh, Fulton Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, older, a little older. He was 27. Uh, the paper made uh, a, a point of going to his house and interviewing him and kind of noting all the hippie kind of things, his hippie lifestyle. And, and the purpose, ostensibly, was just to hang out 
enjoy rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's no really overt expression of protest or anything toward the Vietnam War or anything like that. But since it really was a hippie festival, and they uh, really made a point of emphasizing that it was for young Hippies. They didn't really say hippie, but uh, the paper said that a lot. The paper did say hippie. Oh yeah, the paper said hippies a lot, but but the the people themselves didn't really, at least in uh, the accounts they gave in the newspaper, didn't really identify themselves as hippies. But uh, you, you know, opposition to the war was kind of a central part of the hippie subculture. So uh, there are um, you know peace signs and mm-hmm. and things like that, but but nothing nothing really extreme in terms of protest. The event went by several names. Uh, can you tell us uh, a few of these names? And uh, so some of the general ones were Kansas Woodstock, because you, you know, the, besides the, the festivals going on in the Midwest, uh, Woodstock had taken place just a year before in 1969. And, uh, somebody came up with Cornstock, which was kind of the Kansas <laughs> right. version of Woodstock. That's my favorite, right? Cornstock. And then there was the Peace at Pittsburgh Festival, or the Pittsburgh Peace Festival. It was also a very common name mm-hmm. uh, for it. And the Arma Pit Festival was... I'm sorry, the what? The Arma Pit Festival, kind of okay. like Armpit Festival, uh, because the the original location of the festival was supposed to be between, located between Arma and Pittsburgh, Kansas, so com- somebody came up with that kind of smart aleck name. The main attraction, of course, was the music. Who were the featured bands, and would we recognize any of these guys today? Um, well, probably the most recognizable band was uh, uh, Kansas uh, that's from, fi- from that's to- fitting. Yeah, yeah, from Topeka. Um, it was. It would have been a, a very early incarnation of the band with different members than they had when they came out with their debut album in '74. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they were certainly the most famous. A lot of the other bands came from Kansas City, Fort Scott. Um, Impulse Federation, Rock Sanctuary, uh, Man Alive, a number of different uh, bands. And then there was this, uh, the high, apparently the, well, there was a lot of speculation, a lot of rumor um, that the organizers kind of were kind of floating, uh, that big name bands were going to just show up. Oh, clever uh, marketing. Good marketing move. And they actually said, well, you know, we heard that the Grateful Dead might show up. Of course. Play. Um, but uh, they never did. The, the, but the high point of the festival actually was uh, Jerry Hahn's Brotherhood. The Jerry Hahn Brotherhood was a, uh, a band uh, from San Francisco that actually had a recording contract with Columbia Records. And Jerry Hahn was from Wichita, grew up in Wichita. He was a, a, a jazz. He was a local boy. Yeah, he was a local boy. And actually they were playing a, a Labor Day event in Wichita. Um, the Jerry Hahn Brotherhood Band was playing in Wichita. And uh, when they heard about this event, uh, Jerry Hahn uh, drove over um, and, and checked it out and thought, well, this would be, we got to get over here and play. Right. So he called his band members and, and they all came over and played. And they played reportedly for four hours straight, Jeez. Uh, really late uh, Sunday uh, evening into Monday morning. Or at least the footage, anyway, uh, has kind of a clear counterculture tone to it. Um, however, in the end, the festival may have actually kind of contributed to more severe repression. How did the festival end, and who is this guy, Vern Miller, who kind of becomes involved or is, uh, you know, is connected later on? Sure. Well, the, uh, the festival almost ended uh, late Monday night, late Sunday night, um, when there was a brush fire. Around the perimeter and actually got pretty big, yeah. uh, and and somebody got on a CB radio and called the the rural uh, fire department and they came out and put it out. So really, the rural fire department. Yeah, that's so, funny. Uh, 
But but then, uh, sadly, the event ended uh, early Monday morning, kind of abruptly, when um, a car that was exiting the field ran over uh, two teenagers from Missouri and really critically injured uh, one of them. Uh, and then that week, uh, in the press, uh, a, n- a number of articles started to come out where uh, prominent people in the community, politicians, um, started to... Uh, voice their concern about how the whole festival was uh, was managed in terms of the local governments, how they responded to mm-hmm. it. And uh, Vern Miller was a uh, Sedgwick County Sheriff in Wichita, and he was Sedgwick County Sheriff from like 64 to 70, so he'd, he had been there for a while. And he was also a Democratic candidate for State Attorney General. And uh, keep in mind... At, at the time of this... At the time. Okay. So, so this was an election year. Right. right, and so uh, this this festival, where there was reportedly rampant uh, uh, use of illicit drugs, uh, became a flashpoint, kind of inflaming political divisions uh, at the state, county, and city levels. And uh, Vern Miller really took advantage of that. So, who actually created this film footage, and how did it end up at the Kansas Historical Society? Uh, well, Robert Blunk Jr. Uh, it was the filmmaker. Well, he was a professor at Kansas State College at Pittsburgh. And the, the, how we got it um, was uh, archaeologist Randy Tease. Um, actually, in 2003, he wrote a, uh, a mock uh, paper about the festival. Nice. Um, but in talking to different people who had gone to the festival and, and organizers that were still around, he turned up this film um, that uh, Robert Blunk Jr. had given to somebody. So in looking at the footage, it's very interesting to watch. But I'm curious, Michael, what what did you find most surprising about the film? What I found to be the most fascinating is there's all these people milling around and, you know, they're smoking something. And there's Mm -hmm. what I think is the most interesting is you never see a Porta John anywhere. And this is like a multi-day event. Right. So... I'm not sure what was going on, how they were dealing with that, but that's what I find most disturbing. Well, according to the newspaper, there were, uh, like Johnny on the spot stuff, okay. there, there, there were portable. Uh, uh, what I found, I found really interesting was that he doesn't really show the bands either. I no, mean, he doesn't. He, he shows a very short clip of one band, mm-hmm. and for a rock festival, that seems very strange. But I guess uh, if you think about it, since there was like three days, three state days of music, you know, most people were there to see the bands, and he didn't film them at all, really. Uh, maybe he did. Maybe he just decided not to include those in the film mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, watching bands play... With no sound. With no sound is, is not a very interesting... It's kind of torturous. Yeah, it is. So... I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kanza quiz question regarding the hometown of Harlem Renaissance artist Aaron Douglas. The correct answer is Topeka, Kansas. Born in 1899, Douglas attended Topeka High School, where his budding artistic skill proved quite useful at decorating yearbooks and illustrating the school newspaper. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Good afternoon. And Exhibits Director Chris Prouty. Hello. Today we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Pepsi, the global multinational soft drink producer. 
Chris, you want to give us a little background on uh, on Pepsi? Sure. First introduced as Brad's Drink in North Carolina in 1898, the carbonated soft drink was invented by druggist Caleb Bradham. As was common in the period, Bradham operated a soda fountain inside his drugstore. Invented to aid in digestion and create energy, Brad's drink was made of pepsin, enzymes, and cola nuts. I love, because of that time period, <laughs> things were always being invented to aid in digestion. <laughs> Must have been some <laughs> bad digestion. <laughs> they didn't have Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> or Drano, apparently. That was probably invented then. <laughs> in 1903, Brad renamed his drink Pepsi. Unfortunately, things fizzled out during the Depression when Pepsi went bankrupt and was resold multiple times. In the 1940s, Charles Guth, a candy store owner, purchased Pepsi when Coke failed to give him a proper discount. Damn you, Coke. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thus started the now infamous Cola Wars, a rivalry between Coke and Pepsi. From rigged taste tests to dueling celebrity spokesmen <laughs> to illicit deals with foreign governments, to the virtual branding of public schools as either a Coke campus or a Pepsi campus, the rivalry with Coke has laid waste to much of the 20th century. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I fortunately went to college at a Pepsi campus. campus so. I went to a Coke school. Ah, these <laughs> things happen. All right, thanks, Chris. Now to the game. As a contestant, Chris, you will hear two chains of connections between William Alloway and Pepsi, and you must pick the true six degrees of William Alloway from the false. Make sense? I think so. All right. Nikayla, uh, you can go first. Okay. Gee, thanks. <laughs> okay. In the 1940s, the president of Pepsi was a man named Walter Mack, and Mack supported many progressive causes. He believed Pepsi wasn't advertised enough or in the right manner to African Americans. And to remedy this, he hired an all-black sales team to improve sales to blacks the ads they developed portrayed African Americans in a very positive light. And when was this again? In the 1940s. 1940s. Okay. Yeah. Too. Well, all of this positive spin brought the ire of the Ku Klux Klan against Pepsi. Uh. They did not like that they were portraying African Americans positively or that they were trying to sell to African Americans. Well, the Klan, as we know, is a pretty nasty, racist group. And after <laughs> World War One, rumor has it, so I've heard. Well, after World War One, the Klan really rose in popularity across the country, and they emerged in Kansas. Um, in 1924, the mayor of Emporia was a recognized Klansman, and both candidates for the governor of the state were endorsed by the Klan Jeez. in, I believe, 1926. Um, the rise of the Klan led, um, in Kansas, led William Allen White to throw his hat into the gubernatorial ring. And, I mean, this was pretty big because, you know, he's a very political man, but he had not run for political office up mm -hmm, to that point. Mm -hmm. So he declared the thought that Kansas should have a government beholden to this hooded gang of masked fanatics, ignorant and tyrannical in their ruthless oppression, is what calls me out of the pleasant ways of my life into this disgraceful but necessary task. Oh, good job, William. <laughs> oh, Way to be. Actually, like, he was hard, hardcore against the Klan. He was, yeah. Um, he really helped get the Klan out of the state. So you say. Yeah. Now, my turn. In 1955... Pepsi president Al Steele married Lucille Faye LeSueur, 
or as she was better known, Joan Crawford. The popular American film actress was on her fourth husband. With waning box office revenues, Crawford hoped to seal her financial future by marrying this wealthy Pepsi exec. Born in Texas and raised by a single mother with designs of a celebrity child, Crawford experienced a nomadic childhood to include a short stay in Kansas City. According to local legend, Crawford was known to work at laundromats during the day and perform burlesque shows for no, for the notorious Pendergast family of Kansas City at night, where she often performed with Zazu Pitts, another famous Kansas actress. In the 1940s, William Allen White frequently wrote in his Emporia Gazette editorials uh, and, and railed against the Pendergast political machine. So there you have it, Chris. You have two options. I don't know. That's a little tough because I knew that uh, Lucille Lasseur, uh, Joan Crawford, was a, was an exotic dancer or a dancer at least of mm-hmm. some sort. Um, it, that's kind of hard to choose, but I, I think I'm going to have to go with Nikayla. That is correct. Yes, yes. Uh, I to- I totally made this up. I mean, Crawford, I think, was in Kansas City. I don't know that she ever danced burlesque. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think um, she danced burlesque. I think she was no. like a showgirl kind of dancer yeah. kind of but thing. But she was a little child when they lived in Kansas yes, City. Yes, she was a small child. Yeah. And supposedly that her mom being a laundress is where she got the no more wire hangers thing. Right, oh. which was a, which was an infamous line from a movie yeah. made of her life. Yeah, Mommy Dearest. Yes. yes. Which, if you go back and watch that, the part where she's at the <laughs> Pepsi meetings, priceless. Right, I indeed. love those scenes. She really did marry Pepsi executive Al Steele. And, right. Um, right. It's a pretty, it was a pretty, it was her final marriage, and it was a pretty, um, I guess, business arrangement type mm-hmm. marriage. Okay. For our next episode, we attempt to connect William Allen White to Jesse James, a notorious criminal of the Wild West. Some consider James a drunken malcontent, while others fancy him a Robin Hood. So come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to Jesse James. Did White once challenge James to a brawl, <laughs> only to learn the hard way that White was meant to be a writer? That concludes episode 136, Wrinkled Painting. If you would like to see images of Elizabeth Layton's bizarre Kansas birthday painting, or watch footage of hippies attending the Pittsburgh Peace Festival, go to kansasmemory.org. To receive updates of new items added to this digital repository, just like us on Facebook. In the next episode, curator Rebecca Martin examines a series of sculptures from an artist in western Kansas that specializes in native limestone. Sometimes brittle and always precarious, limestone sculpting requires unique skills and results in rather dumpy-looking figures. Find out how this artist made dumpy look good. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. And